Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of WorthPoint LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WorthPoint. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, John Chapman. Today I interviewed my good friend Jeff McNerney, who is a CPA, certified public accountant, and works for Haney and Company, a uh, an accounting firm here in Newport Beach, California. We covered a huge range of topics, uh, from uh, breaking some uh, myths and demystifying things about the accounting world. We also talked about uh, individuals, whether they're corporate executives or small business owners or retirees, and just some of the challenges and opportunities that they face. Um, but really brought it all the way down to just how important it is to work with a professional who knows the tax code in and out. And it's just part of building your professional financial team. So uh, we covered a ton of stuff. Hang on to your hats. And without further ado, I'll bring on my good friend, Jeff McNerney. Jeff, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm just going to spitball at you. It's tax season. I can't believe you got away from your desk actually to come talk to me. Thank you. I, it's, uh, I don't really know where I am right now. It's all a blur. <laughs> uh, but heading well, back to the office after this. Yeah, for sure. This is a busy season. I'm, I'm very grateful that you're here. Thank you for um, that. You know, I think we got uh, to gotta bust some rocks and we got to demystify tax season for a lot of people. Um, as a financial planner, I get people coming in that want to be aggressive with their taxes and, uh, and they think there's a loophole and they want to do something fancy, but we just need to hear it from an actual CPA, somebody who's sitting down in it day to day. Um, what is available to them? Maybe some thoughts and what isn't, you know, and uh, how far ahead of time they should be doing planning. So, you know, I think we got to, uh, we got, we got some opportunities ahead of us to help educate some people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, that happens a lot where people think that there may be just something out there that they're not aware of. Uh, I think that there are a lot of great CPAs that work close with their clients to help demystify that. Uh, every case is different. Everyone has different income streams, different family situations, estate situations, what have you. Um, there are opportunities to take full advantage of the tax law mm-hmm. and to maximize deductions and maximize your ability to um, uh, really encompass the whole tax law. But every one of them is a case-by-case basis. Yeah, A lot of people feel like there may be some giant thing out there that they don't know. And, and the best part would just be to speak with a CPA to get educated. Um, but generally speaking, the tax law is the tax law. It's, it's written, but that it, it does offer opportunities. So something to just be aware of. What's the, let's start with expectations. And for maybe some people that are listening, they've, they've got good CPA relationships and other people, they just do TurboTax on their own. So like, give us some examples, some context of what, what is the best case scenario of a relationship with your CPA? Mm-hmm. How many times are you communicating? How much are you reconciling the past versus looking to the future? Like just, just, you know, kind of paint a picture of what the perfect relationship looks like. Sure. Um, you know, going back on that, there are a lot of people that do TurboTax and H&R Block, and that's great. I mean, they very well could be filing exactly what they need to file because you don't always need a CPA depending on your tax situation and, and the moving parts. I've had clients that they think that they need CPA services, and I'm very straightforward saying, I think you're okay doing it on TurboTax or H&R Block. Um, I even try to say, listen, I'll take a look at it afterwards to make sure you didn't make any big mistakes, um, generally speaking. Otherwise, I think as your your situation gets more complicated, 
we want clients to feel like if they are feeling like something is changing, that's when you definitely should be calling your CPA. Yeah. Thinking about potentially starting a business or switching um, mm. businesses or switching jobs, industries, or purchasing properties, what have you. Anytime you feel like there may be something that you aren't, aren't aware of, that's a good time to communicate. Yeah. Um, so we want our clients to call us when those are, are happening so we can be on the front end of it versus it already happening and then having to kind of go back and, and make some changes. We have had clients come to us and we've gone back, new clients, we've gone back a couple of years and helped amend tax returns for them mm. to potentially fix uh, some items that hadn't been done correctly. Um, but again, I think that's really you just want your clients or, or potential clients to feel like if they are uneasy or uncertain about something or feeling like they don't know what's happening, that's always a good time to call a CPA. Yeah. I mean, taxes is probably one of those things like maybe being an electrician that you, you, you wanted a professional to help guide you on that. Talk to me a little bit about the roles and responsibilities. So like, is it the responsibility of the CPA to be flagging and telling you everything in advance or coming up with new ideas of ways to save? Uh, how much is on the shoulders of the, the actual tax filer versus a CPA? Yeah, th so that's a great question. The The CPA, I mean, going back to your previous question, you know, the CPA's role is when you do have clients that are uneasy, that is where you add a lot of value because now you're talking about different scenarios that are coming up again. Maybe they're buying a business or buying property or making some big change. That's where you want a CPA involved to help navigate that, to know that it's done correctly and done to maximize your benefit. The, the preparation per se is, and it's, it could be complicated, but, but a lot of that is, is after numbers are final, mm. right? I mean, you're preparing off of numbers from the prior year that are set in stone, if you will. Mm. So hopefully you've done a lot of planning or been proactive to make sure things are done correctly throughout the year um, so that at the end of the year, you're not uneasy and you're not blindsided by a potential tax bill or a potential unknown that was never discussed beforehand. Are there are clients, unfortunately, that may wait too long to talk to a CPA about something? Yeah, it happens. I mean, everyone's busy. They have lives. They have jobs. Um, so it's not always easy for them to go, gosh, I didn't really call my CPA on this. So that happens, and that's okay. But a lot of times it's when a client comes in with a situation or with a change, that's where we get involved to say, okay, here's what we need to be looking out for. Here's what we need to do correctly. Hmm. Here's where we need to make, make some changes or structure something before all of this is finalized to do this in your best interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to break down a couple of scenarios. I want to talk about somebody that maybe works in a corporate job. Maybe they're a highly paid executive. We can also talk a little bit about like small business owners. And then I'll talk a little bit about retirees too. So I've got some, uh, certainly some client scenarios in my mind that might be helpful for listeners. Um, but I also want to hear from you some like great clients that you've been able to help and also some of like the worst case scenarios and other things like that that come to mind. Sure. So um, let's talk about a highly compensated corporate employee mm -hmm. and what if any avenues they have to do some type of tax planning and, and let's just talk about somebody that has income ab above three or four hundred thousand dollars a year that's either paid you know in salary or as a cash bonus mm -hmm. and so like what are some of the uh, maybe tax planning strategies that come to your mind and you know how much flexibility does a person like this have yeah so in that situation if they're a, a corporate employee they're most likely a w-2 employee and the, the opportunities with a W-2 employee are, are not many. Um, what we may look at doing is if someone's being highly compensated and they've got leftover um, liquidity, if you will, maybe we're helping them invest in some more tax advantageous items, whether it's investments or whether it's real estate, 
um, we'll work with their advisors on whether it's you know financial advisors or real estate brokers to um, look through those opportunities. But otherwise, as a W-2 employee, you're really limited as far as what you can write off. As a matter of fact, uh, in 2018, they changed the tax law where uh, unreimbursed employee expenses, they used to be limited to 2% of adjusted gross income. They're not even available anymore for federal. Mm. Now, California doesn't conform on that. So if you're a California resident, something that you would still want to potentially be tracking. Mm. Um, but for federal purposes, those aren't even deductible if they're above that limitation. So when I do have clients that make a substantial amount of money, but they're W-2, the conversation is is maybe you're not complicated enough and in, in a good way, but maybe you don't need a CPA service per se at that point to file tax returns based on W-2 income. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at saying, yes, I know it's simple now, but I may want to get into different avenues, whether it's real estate or investing in businesses or investing in stocks, the, the stocks and bonds with the financial advisor, that's where we could definitely help them navigate that correctly. Yeah. I'm glad you bring this up because this is a tough reality. You know, I'll get a lot of people that are corporate employees, W-2, they're highly compensated. And I think just the reality is, is that there may be less opportunities and uh, not that we don't want to explore all available options, but if you're getting the W-2, you know, the great benefit is you make a ton of money and the downside is you got to pay the taxes, but whatever that net income is, you should invest whatever you don't spend and maybe move on. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I'm, again, I'm being, I'm speaking very generally here because maybe certain people scenarios are different even if they are w-2 we would still want to look at that and and see if there maybe are opportunities there but generally speaking when someone's a w-2 employee it's more straightforward from what they can do i do have clients that have been highly compensated w-2 employees and then what ends up happening is they look at potentially doing it on their own Mm. whether maybe they work for a marketing company and they've been a w-2 employee at a marketing company for a long time and they're realizing i i might want to actually do this on my own sure that's where you've got a lot more opportunities because mm. now you're going to potentially work as quote self-employed. Maybe you'll want to set up an entity um, that really opens up more deductions for mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. Um, but you also are self-employed. So <laughs> something that you want to navigate. Time. Yeah. Right. Well, I, so of course you're, you're, I know you're not an attorney and you can't necessarily say like, what the best entity form is, but can you just give us your perception of some of the differences and similarities of LLC and S corp? How do you how do you see that actually? Uh, you know some of the differences there when people are filing their tax returns. Sure, and again, generally generally speaking, uh, an LLC and an S corp are are both taxed similarly for federal purposes. It's all passed through income in California as well. It passes through to the individual on their individual tax return. So you do file an LLC tax return and an S-Corp tax return, but the income passes through to the individual and is taxed on the individual income tax return. California is a little bit different with LLCs. California has a minimum $800 LLC tax every year. And then depending on how much your, how much your gross receipts are, what level they reach, there's a tiered LLC fee structure. It can go from 900 to as high as 11600 I believe it is. Um, an S corp for California purposes pays a 1.5% net income tax. So, uh, I'm glad you asked that. And I do tell clients that there is not a one size fits all entity. It really depends on what the activity is going to be, what business they're going to do, what their purpose is. Do they want to have investors in the future? They don't want to bring other parties in to be owners in this. Um, those are conversations that you want to have with someone before just saying, listen, you should definitely do an LLC or you should definitely do an S corporation. Um, so that's again, where you want to have those conversations with clients to 
understand what their goals are, understand where they currently are, and then help them navigate the best scenario going forward. Can you think of anybody that comes to mind that their situation specifically warrants having one or the other? I mean, you talked about one scenario of like maybe having investors in the future or something mm-hmm. like that. So give me an example of a client situation that would really, really benefit from maybe one or the other. So an LLC, we have a lot of clients that do real estate. So you hold real estate in an LLC for liability purposes. Uh, clients that are self-employed, maybe let's say they're uh, brokers or let's say they own um, an actual business. Maybe they want to now be an S corporation. There's a little bit more tax advantages as an S corp from a self-employment tax situation. It's a lot more complicated than just it's beneficial without self-employment. There's wages that might need to be involved. Um, A lot of just nuances that go into that. So an LLC also is a little bit more... Uh, it's a little bit easier to add on additional investors in the future. So if you want to have people buy in, so a lot of startups actually start out as LLCs. So startup companies where they want to raise money uh, and get people in, maybe they've got people that put debt in and now they want to potentially convert debt to equity. LLCs tend to be a little bit more favorable with that over S corporations. That makes total sense. A question that comes up often, this is total side note, is gifting. Mm-hmm. And sometimes parents will want to help their young children with a down payment on a home and this and that. So give us some re-education on what the uh, gifting rules are and the lifetime exemption rules and all that and what people need to be kind of knowledgeable of when they're wanting to help out friends or family. Sure. So from the gifting perspective, um, you can actually gift any person, individual, up to 15000 per year, and you don't have to file a gift tax return, and it actually does not affect your lifetime exemption amount. Any amount over the $15,000 um, starts to become a credit against your lifetime exemption. So in 2020, the lifetime exemption amount is $11,580,000, meaning throughout your entire lifetime, you could gift up to $11,580,000 of gifts and pay no income taxes on those gifts. However, it's a combined gift and estate lifetime exemption. So in that scenario, if you've given $11,580,000 away, hopefully you don't have any estate left because you've eaten up the entire exemption amount. Mm-hmm. And that's just for a single. If it's married, that's double. So you're doubling, doubling the $11,500,000. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, if it's 15000 or less, you don't have to file an estate tax return or a gift tax return. Uh, but if it's above that, you file a gift tax return, and the gift tax return is not necessarily a taxable gift. It's just reporting to the IRS that you've given a gift to a specific individual, and it is now gone against that lifetime exemption amount. I think that's super important. So just a quick example. So let's just say the lifetime exemption amount, and let's say for a married couple, I'm just going to use round dollar amounts of like uh, $23 million. And so if the parents wanted to give, uh, you know, their their two children, let's just say, um, you know, $500,000 each for down payment on a home, because you need that nowadays in California, you know, (laughs) uh, to buy whatever million dollar home, that two $500,000 is a million that goes together. And that goes against their $23,000, million dollar exception in the Correct. Future. So now in that scenario, they would have 22 million left. Mm-hmm. And that would be, they can still gift off of the 22 million, but it also goes to their lifetime uh, yeah. estate amounts. And so and if their estate was over that 22 million when they pass away, then anything above that would have some type of federal Yes, it's a 40% tax. estate tax. <laughs> that's right. heavy duty. It is. So that's yeah. why a lot of clients look at potentially gifting during their lifetime, depending on what kind of assets they hold. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times if clients have uh, highly appreciable assets, let's say real estate. They've owned it in some very um, 
highly appreciable areas. They might want to gift it out of their estate now because let's say that property is worth $5 million, but conservative estimates, it could go up to seven, eight, ten million over the next 10, 20 years, depending on life expectancies. You've now taken a $5 million asset, moved it out of the estate. Yes, you've eaten up $5 million of the lifetime gift in the estate exemption amount, but if that now goes from $5 million up to $8 million or $10 million, mm-hmm. you now have that appreciation out of your state already to your heirs. But I will, I will caution and say that, again, and I, I don't want to continue to repeat this, it's all on a case-by-case basis yeah, totally. because yeah. you can't always say, yes, you want to gift it out of your estate because when you gift it out of your estate, now your heirs are not having the step-up value at the estate. So going back to that example, right. So let's say someone has a $20 million estate and it's a non-taxable estate um, because it's under that 23 million. And let's say, unfortunately, both of the, of the individuals, the the husband and wife pass away that $22 million estate, if it's owned by them now gets a step up basis to 22 million on upon their death. So now the heirs, when they are receiving the assets from the estate, their basis is now the $22 million Mm -hmm, basis. mm -hmm. So you have to be cautious and really understand the big picture and all the moving parts with any um, client to, to whether or not you want to gift assets out or you want to keep them in the estate. There's just a lot of moving parts. Yeah, these are I'm, these can certainly be complex topics. And I know we're talking quick. And of course, these are big dollar amounts. But I think uh, just to reiterate, one of the important things is, I, and I, I find that a lot of people don't know that there is a step up in basis. Um, so maybe we can just use an example of mom and dad having, uh, let's say, a million dollars in stocks, but they actually purchased those stocks for like $250,000. Right. So talk to us about about you know if the if the children receive that million dollars in stocks you know what what yeah talk to us a little bit about what that step up in basics mm-hmm. actually means yeah so on that scenario if if a mom and dad let's say they bought stock twenty years ago and they bought it for two hundred and fifty thousand and now the stock is worth a million dollars mom and dad both pass away the the fair market value let's say it's the million dollars becomes the new basis for the heirs so the heirs inheriting the stock now is that a million dollars. So let's say the heirs turn around and they want to sell all of the stock. They want to get out of the stock market or they want to diversify or they need a down payment for a house. They sell the stock and let's say, let's say we'll keep it simple. Let's say there's one heir and they get the million dollars of stock. They can turn around and sell that. And assuming there's no difference on fair market value changing over a couple of days, really they have no gain on the sale of the stock. Yeah. Uh, So the the fair market value step up upon the passing of mom and dad gets passed on to the heirs as their new basis. So um, I actually want to go down this rabbit hole a little bit because I see this sometimes in the brokerage world for financial planning of parents wanting to have their kids become joint owners of their brokerage account while they're still living. Let's say mom and dad are in their 80s, they're, you know, cognitive decline, but they've got a million dollars of stocks, but they've got low basis on it. So when they add, this is actually a question, uh, when they add, uh, you know, the child on as a joint owner, um, one, you you know, what do they need to do from a gifting standpoint? And two, have they lost the step up and basis opportunity on that new joint account? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think that I will kind of punt that. It's more of a legal question because I'd want to know, I really would want to know how they are being signed onto the account. Um, becoming a joint owner has its own implications. I, so I would, I would go, I would, yeah, I would put that to an attorney to make sure the, the verbiage is very clear because if we're in that situation where mom and dad have stock that's very low basis and high appreciated value, you wouldn't, in assuming they're older and looking at it saying, okay, I want to just hold this until I pass away and my, my 
children get the step-up basis, then you'd want to make sure from a legal perspective that you aren't um, messing that up, that you're not unfortunately transferring it to the kids somehow via the um, mm-hmm. the documents involved that now shows it more as a gift versus yeah. it still being mom and dad's when they pass away. Yeah, I got that. Um, now thinking about like retirees, um, uh, one of the things I was actually at a, a conference recently and uh, the, the researcher, the economist that was talking was just saying how in light of the tax changes in 2018 and the standard deduction is now so high that so many seniors are no longer itemizing, especially with a salt cap. So I guess, can you define or explain what the salt, the $10,000 state and local tax uh, maximum mm-hmm. is or whatever that is, and then how you see retirees impacted by, I don't know, either tax law change or what their tax situation is? Sure. Yeah. So the salt cap is is a new uh, verbiage in 2018 that came out where basically for, again, federal purposes, uh, some states conform, but California does not conform. But for federal purposes, the maximum deduction that an individual is allowed for the combination of uh, state and local income taxes and property taxes is limited to ten thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars. In the past, property taxes did not have a limitation. By past, I mean before two thousand eighteen, property taxes did not have a limitation. Um, but one of the things they did was they moved the AMT exclusion amounts up fairly high. And why that's a big deal is that when a lot of people say, gosh, I pay a lot in property taxes and now it's only going to be limited to $10,000, I'm going to have a really bad tax liability. Again, case by case basis, but you don't necessarily know if that's true because if that individual had been in the alternate minimum tax, AMT, if they had been in AMT in prior years, they weren't getting any benefit for the property tax deduction. It yeah. was an add back for them. Yeah. Um, so on that note, yes, they did limit the 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 state and local property taxes to 10000 but they also increased the standard deduction to 12000 for a single filer. Yeah. So they did some things to help, um, but again, a lot of people did kind of see that as an issue at times. So brought up a lot of conversations. Since you brought up AMT, is there a way to easily define, to, to explain AMT? Who would be somebody, what would be a case scenario of somebody who does fall into it in an AMT yeah, tax so situation? AMT is... is it is somewhat complicated because there's a lot of addbacks. They're called AMT preference items. But in essence, the, the most simplified way to say that would be a flat tax almost, mm-hmm. where you might have your total income, you've got your itemized deductions, you get down to what your potential liability would be, but then there's this AMT alternate minimum tax involved where you compare that liability and with AMT, there's some addbacks, property taxes, um, a couple other addbacks on a, we don't have to get into the, the nitty gritty on the details there. And then you see which one's higher. If your tax liability is higher than the alternate minimum tax, then that's your tax liability. But if your tax liability is lower than the alternate minimum tax, then the alternate minimum tax is your tax liability. Okay, yeah. So, so if somebody were to have whatever, some some version of high income, but they have lots of deductions, you can't just deduct all of your high income down to zero. At some point, the AMT is going to kick in. Not, it, there are times when it kicks in still, but they've raised the exemption amount fairly high from 2018 going forward okay. that... A lot of clients that were subject to alternate minimum tax in prior years, yeah. we've actually done calculations and projections and show that they might not be subject to that. Yeah. So um, something to be aware of. Tell us an example of just some interesting cases that you've worked on in the past, or maybe like the most, even just a, a complex case that you can think about uh, to really kind of help, uh, you know, just just give open people's minds to to some of the value of tax planning for their sure. family. 
Uh, and I think you and I talked about this a little bit earlier, just casually. Um, but one of the things, setting up an entity, what we talked about before, there are a lot of different entity choices and not one size fits all. So you want to work with someone to make sure you're maximizing the benefits there. From an estate perspective, probably the most complicated situation we've been in is estate planning. Um, talking about gifts. Do you gift assets or do you not gift assets? What kind of basis do we have? What are the appreciable uh, potentials on these assets? All of those factors need to go into it. Is it real estate? Is it stocks and bonds? Is it a principal? Is it a business? A lot of those are, are questions that need to be considered before putting together an estate plan. Um, business valuations become a, a, an issue. Are you going to potentially transfer part of your, let's say you own your own business. Are you going to potentially transfer part of your business to uh, heirs or employees or someone? Are you going to sell portions of it? Because now, depending on what kind of entity you have, you may get really nice lack of disc, uh, lack of marketability, lack of control discounts, um, which are IRS terminology for when you transfer. Let's I'll simplify that. Let's say you owned an LLC and the LLC uh, was owned 100% by you, but then you wanted to go ahead and you wanted to, let's say you wanted to sell 30% of it to someone else, mm-hmm. or you wanted to gift 30% of it to one of your children. The 30% ownership in the LLC, um, there are IRS discounts on the value there for lack of control and lack of marketability because it's not as easy as saying my business is worth a million dollars, so take 30% of that. What happens is you say my business was worth, let's say it's worth a million dollars, and you take what's 30, what's 30%, but then you have to factor in, well, how marketable is the 30%? Mm. Does someone outside want to buy a minority ownership in this company from me? Maybe not. So now you get into potential um, discount valuations, which are done by legitimate valuation companies. So you would hire a valuation company to make that determination. Those discount values can be anywhere from really low, 15, 10, 15%, as high as 30 to 35% on the value. Um, so we had an estate where we had to do a lot of, of, of those items and a lot of that planning in consideration before we were able to put together a comprehensive plan. And then we ended up doing so. And it took about a year and a half to put the entire estate plan together. But uh, in the end, it was great, worked out very well, it was very beneficial to the client. Their objectives were met. Um, their tax uh, advantages were were maximized, and I think all in all, it was a it was a successful transaction, but a complicated one for sure. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Uh, another question, random. Uh, have you been through any audits uh, or had clients that have been going through audits for, let's say, on their personal return from the IRS? Mm-hmm. And t- talk to the people who haven't been through that before. What is what is that process like? Yeah, I, I will. Premise it, we, we have had clients that have gone through audits with the IRS and Franchise Tax Board. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often because you never want your clients to get audited. Not that there's anything wrong there. It's just additional time that your client has to now devote to this. Um, and a lot of times what happens is they get contacted by the IRS or the Franchise Tax Board for California, and, and it's initially it's just a document request. It's just, it's just substantiating what was reported on their tax return, which we make sure clients can substantiate what was reported on their returns. So a lot of times it's just as easy as providing them documentation to uh, substantiate that the, the item that they were looking at. The IRS or California, the Franchise Tax Board, um, obtain the documentation and then understand that it was was substantiated and then the case is closed. Other times it may be calculations that are done on more complicated business tax returns or how did you calculate this or how did you calculate that? And that's where you provide the documentation, also substantiate how you uh, came to the calculation, the conclusion, and you walk the IRS auditor through how a client got to that number and how we helped them do so. 
Um, so are IRS audits scary? Clients tend to think that they are scary, but when you really look at it as like, listen, this is just the IRS wanting to make sure you can substantiate what you've put into this, you can really help them deal with it. Talk to me a little bit about how you got into this business in the first place and why you became a CPA. Sure. Uh, I got into the CPA industry. My father was a CPA, still is a CPA, uh, for 40 plus years. And I, um, I saw the, I saw the, the stability of what he did. And so I figured, you know, through his advice, he said, listen, get your background in accounting and your CPA, and then you can have flexibility afterwards with what you decide to do. So I was doing that and I was actually working at KPMG and then I worked for Grant Thornton in corporate tax for a little bit after that. And now I've been at Haney & Company going on a little over eight years. Um, and what I've liked about it is you're, you are a problem solver, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what we've talked about on this podcast is you have clients that come in and they either are thinking of doing something or they've already done something and they may need help either fixing it or structuring something correctly. And to be that for somebody has been more of the, um, I guess, more of the benefits of what I like to do. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what really turned me on to saying, okay, this is great. I mean, it's, it's, we're working with complicated items and we're working with, you know, you've got human emotions involved and you've got a lot of moving parts to be aware of. But at the end of the day, when you're able to help someone navigate something that was overwhelming to them in the beginning mm. and making it something that they can understand or making it less scary, yeah. if you will. Yeah. That's where I got a lot of, of enjoyment from it. Yeah, I like that. And then talk a little bit about too, like how do you see CPAs fitting into somebody's life and what's the best case scenario? Because, you know, for financial planning, sometimes I'll see people that say, uh, I like doing all my stock trading on my own or I like doing, you know, my, my taxes through TurboTax. But, um, you know, I find that just, uh, you know, you know, having multiple professionals look at it across the board. So I don't know, what's the best case scenario for people when they're thinking about their financial situation? Sure. You know, I think it's, it kind of goes back to the very beginning where if your current tax situation isn't as complicated needing a CPA, then I think you're okay still handling yourself. I do have clients that they just don't want to handle it themselves. They want to know that someone else is looking at it or someone that is an actual CPA is looking at it versus doing it on TurboTax or, or going to one of the local tax prepare H&R Block or Liberty Tax, I think it's another one. Um, so they look at it and say, I would rather have someone that can maybe even help me explain some of this. You know, I don't know. I've, I've never used TurboTax or um, H&R Block, but, but I have had clients that have come back and said, you know, I would like a little bit more feedback on what's going on. And like I said before, TurboTax, H&R Block, those, those kind of outfits, it's not that something's not being done correctly because I look at clients' tax returns that, let's say you're talking about a W-2, like we've talked before, and they might not need a CPA. So I think those are a great fit. But when they kind of have more questions on, well, what does this mean and how does this interact and, and why is this happening? Or I, had, I saw a change year over year or, hey, I've had now some family matters that might come into the mix. Those are where you may just want to talk with someone and talk through it and and maybe they are are still fine to be using the prepare that they have been using and at least they'll feel good about that at that point, like feeling, okay, I'm, I'm doing all right. Or if they want to just have a better conversation or more detailed conversation, they've opened up an opportunity for that. Right on. I love it. Jeff, thanks for coming today. I appreciate your time, dude. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.